Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. So I'm recording this intro from an undisclosed basement location with music blaring a floor above me. So if you hear anything, that's the reason why. But more on that in the next episode. So it's hard to say where I first heard of Chriselle Lim. She was one of the OG YouTubers in 2011, blogging about fashion, beauty, and lifestyle way before anyone else was. Now she has over 2 million followers across Instagram and YouTube combined. And she's honestly just really good at it. There are so few people that I'd want to listen to when they talk directly to a camera. And Chriselle is one of them. I can't not watch her. Since she became a mother to two insanely adorable daughters, Chriselle has become something of a motherhood influencer. She recently founded a platform called Bumo, which means parents in Korean, which offers educational support services to parents and kids. But even before that, her daughters were integral to her online presence. If she's making a video and one of the girls runs into the shot, they become part of the story. She doesn't delete it or redo it. You see her life as it happens, which is rare, especially for an influencer. So the main thing I was looking forward to in my conversation with Griselle was talking about motherhood. And that's because I don't know if I want to have kids and... Honestly, even saying that out loud kind of scares me because I want to want to have kids, if that makes sense. I just don't know if I do. I don't have a partner and I don't know what's next for me. So factoring kids into the equation is just not even part of my reality right now. But I've always wanted to have this kind of conversation with someone who's living a life that I'm so far from. No spoilers for our episode, but the way Chriselle talked about being a mother was so refreshing and unexpected, especially from someone that has a social presence like hers. She makes motherhood so approachable and easy to talk about. So I was definitely relieved and reassured to see the side of Chriselle that I'd personally never heard. So here it is, my conversation with Chriselle Lim. You grew up mostly in California, right? I grew up, or I was born in Texas, but grew up in the Bay Area. So I lived in the Bay Area most of my life. And then then I moved to Korea for like three years because my dad relocated over there mm-hmm. uh, for work. And then I moved back to the Bay. And then once I graduated high school, I moved to LA. And it's, I've been here for about 15 years now. So, And how do you like it? Do you feel it's a city that... Like you have a love-hate relationship? Is it mostly love? Well, I'm about an hour outside of the city. So I don't really love LA, the city in itself so much. But I do love the area that I'm at. And, you know, we're out here because mainly the schooling is really good for the kids. Mm. And and I don't know. I just, I feel like when I'm in LA, I just, I'm like constantly on. Um, and I just mm-hmm. like can't really turn off. So it, mm-hmm. it works out that I live kind of further away from the city. So I just have like, I kind of have like two different lives. Which is probably needed, right? Like it must be a nice like mental separation. between. Yeah, totally. Maybe it's kind of like you in Berlin. 
Oh my God, totally. I feel like I, <laughs> I have two different identities. You know, I have like my Berlin life and then I have my New York life, which is an entirely different group of people, mm-hmm. different set of everything. My parents are there and yeah, there's definitely a, a separation. Same. Yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I want to go back a bit to your initial interest in fashion mm-hmm. because there was this quote you said referring to your childhood, which I loved and it really stuck with me. You said, when I was younger, clothes were my armor of strength and confidence. And I so related to this because when I was a tween, I also found my confidence in clothes, especially with like Limited to and Abercrombie <laughs> and Fitch. I'm such a child of the 90s. Same. And, <laughs> and when my mom bought me my first Abercrombie and Fitch shirt, we'll never forget it. It was like orange with an A and F on the boob. My confidence skyrocketed. And I find it so interesting that in grade school, I feel like it's the only time where fitting in in social currency has to do with wearing a certain brand, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like so much more than any other time in your life. And I want to unpack this idea with you a bit. Just how did clothes become armor for you? Yeah. Well, I grew up in a city where I guess it was predominantly all white and I was probably one out of three Asian people within my school. And I went to in your really, entire school. Mm-hmm, in my entire school. Crazy. And one of them being my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just my sister and I and another person, basically. Jesus. And so I always felt a bit like an outsider. I never truly felt like I was a part of the community. And people looked at me differently as well. They were nice to me. No one necessarily really bullied me, but I could always tell that I would never necessarily be in with their crowd. And so for me, I've always loved fashion and not that it was a strategy. It's not like in high school, I was like thinking of a strategy of how to become more popular, even though I'm sure that there are kids that do that. I was not one of those. But for me, I was like, I love fashion and it makes me feel good. So I'm just going to invest all my money and my time and my resources, my limited resources back in high school to clothes because I really feel like shit when I'm at school because I look so different. So I want to feel good. And so mm-hmm. I spent all of my paychecks and I worked throughout my entire life um, ever since I was in middle school, which I think is probably illegal at this point. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> but I, I worked my whole life. So I always understood that, okay, if I want if I want to buy something, I could work for it. And so I would spend my entire paycheck on clothes and everyone would always compliment me. And I became kind of obsessed and addicted to getting those compliments from other people because I was not getting Mm. that anywhere else from, you know, my social groups or, you know, at home. And so I would always put extra effort into my daily outfits to get compliments from other people. And it almost was that whole concept of like faking it till you made it. And it still mine too. And so I was faking me being confident through the clothes that I was wearing and I was purchasing. And naturally people thought I was this really cool, confident girl. And all of a sudden I became like a really popular kid at school because of my clothes. But deep down inside, I was still the really shy, insecure, Asian American girl that never felt like I was good enough for anybody, but no one really knew that. And Mm -hmm. so that is what clothes was able to do for me. And so that's why I called it my armor. 
Do you remember the first time that you felt seen in high school? Because I also had a very similar situation to you. I felt like... I mean, I I had a learning disability and Mm. I felt so shattered confidence-wise by that. And the medication that I had to take it made me feel more awkward than I already Mm. felt, you know? And yeah, I'm just kind of curious the first time that you felt seen because I feel like, I don't know, I remember that moment a bit. I'm curious if you do too. Yeah, I remember specifically when the girls that I always kind of looked up to, Mm -hmm. they were a year older than me, but they asked me to sit with them during lunch. And that was a big moment for me. (laughs) Totally, totally. Now that I'm speaking out loud, I, I... feel so silly back then. Like if I could only tell myself, you know, my younger self, the things that I know now, but it did mean a lot back then because at the end of the day, people just want to feel valued and loved and seen. And I really Mm -hmm. felt seen during that time Um, because before that I felt invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that specific moment. It was like outdoors and I was wearing this like really cool kind of like all black emo look because that's what was in back then. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. <laughs> that's so nice. I remember my first moment too. And it was just, it meant everything. And yeah, I also felt the same way towards boys. I don't know if you felt that at all. Like, I mean, I was in an all-girls school, but we still kind mm. of fraternized with boys' schools. And I just remember going to the dances and just feeling, you know, I was never asked to slow dance. Like one of those O-Town songs came yeah. on that everyone slow danced to. <laughs> I was never asked to dance. And it really does kind of eat at you. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if you carried any of this residual ostracization with you in any capacity. Because mm-hmm. I think I graduated and like it took me a moment for me to find my beat and my confidence again mm-hmm. and kind of acknowledge that, you know, I wasn't the person that is yeah. the awkward one out or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it in different ways, but I do carry that. And I think it's a lot of upbringing as well, which is like, for me, it's like not being good enough for certain things, um, whether it be fitting in or like, you know, not looking like everyone else. But now with kind of the work that I do, I just have to remind myself that I'm more than my work and I'm not Mm -hmm. just a number on Instagram or TikTok. And that is something that I've had to learn as I've been building my career, just because I've been doing this for like 12 years now. And I think it kind of goes back to what is your armor? And yes, my armor at this point might be all this awesome content and all the like all these amazing people that are following me and how many followers someone has or I have. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's like what's within. And I think for me, going back to my high school self, it's like I wish I could just tell myself that it doesn't really matter if the girls at school that you look up to ask if you want to sit with them. Because at the end of the day, it's just do you love yourself, right? Do you want to Mm -hmm. sit with yourself? And that's all that really matters. But of course, that's, that's a foreign concept when you're in high school. So... Oof, moment for that. Do you want to sit with yourself? Because that's Mm -hmm. all that matters. That is like a total bumper sticker quote. Yeah. I'm curious what the next few years looked like for you because then when you put your first video online, which was 2011, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you have the confidence to do that? And... I've been thinking about this so much when I was researching you because I watched that video and your confidence... No, I'm sorry, girl. Your confidence in that video 
Like I was like watching to the end and then I like rewatched it and I was like, oh my God, she could sell me paper clips and I would buy them. <laughs> and I'm like, how on earth does this girl that had all of the ups and downs and the feeling like an outsider and all these things, how did she have the chutzpah to make this video? Because that first step is everything and it's so mm-hmm. hard to take that first step, you know? Yeah. So there were a few years after that. So after I graduated high school, I moved to LA. And when I went to LA, I I knew I wanted to do fashion, but I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do in fashion. So I took mm-hmm. a few years figuring it out. I, I did a lot of internships and, you know, people introduced me to other people. And during those, I would say about four years, I was just kind of figuring who I was and who I wanted to become and what I wanted to do. And then I think about maybe it was three years after I left my small town up north. That's when I started my YouTube channel. I was in college. And honestly, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew one person. Her name is Michelle Fawn. She was like YouTube beauty guru, like OG. I met her through a mutual friend. And she was During like, college or in college or... It was like right in the middle of college. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, I was like, what, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I'm a makeup artist. I was like, oh, like who, like, what do you do as a makeup artist? And she's like, I make videos. I was like, what? You make videos and you're a makeup artist? How does that work? So yeah. I just went down this like dark rabbit hole of researching what she did. And she was like, I'll help you make your first YouTube video. And so she helped me guide like what I should do for my first video. So a lot of that confidence was like just given to me through her confidence and her success Mm. from YouTube. And so uh, what you don't see in that first video is like her directing me being like, look at the camera or don't be shy. And yeah, because it was so awkward. But yeah, that first video after it kind of went viral. Like overnight, um, like you woke up. Overnight. Insane. Like, did anyone else promote it or did it, you just like uploaded it to YouTube and it just like took off on its own? Yeah, because back then the just YouTube and social platforms, I mean, Instagram didn't even exist at that point, but YouTube mm-hmm. pretty much, they would just literally feature anyone that uploaded a video on their front page. Uh... And so you would get so many views just from YouTube promoting you. And that is... How I built up my YouTube following back then because YouTube really pushed their creators. Obviously, Mm. 10 years later, it's a different beast. Now YouTube is much larger than what it was when I first started. I mean, those beginning days were so wild because I was able to be creative because I didn't know that I had that bone in me until I started my YouTube channel. And I just became addicted with creating content um, and not for making money per se, uh-huh. because back then no one was making money on creating content. That wasn't a structure that was in place. Yeah, it wasn't a structure. Like there was no influencer marketing uh, industry at all. Right. And so I was just doing it for myself um, because I enjoyed it. And I really, truly loved like creating concepts, putting it together in my head and then filming it and then mm-hmm. editing it and just seeing the final result and people just loving the videos. And I did that for almost like eight years straight. Jesus. Yeah. Why didn't you think you had a creative bone in your body? I was, I never really explored that side in me and I was never really given the opportunities. My parents are immigrant parents and they came here thinking that, you know, the usual, which is 
the best careers are becoming mm-hmm. a doctor, lawyer, mm-hmm. something in finance, maybe. Actually, I started I started um, my college year studying accounting because my parents were like, you should probably study accounting because... Yeah, mine said the same thing. Right? And I don't know. I wasn't much of a risk taker back then. And so I just did what my parents told me to do. And... Mm-hmm. I didn't really discover my creative side until it was after I left the house after high school. And I started discovering um, art and also fashion and all of that. Mm -hmm. And when was that moment of, oh my God, this can be my career? Like, fuck accounting. This is my jam and I can make a living off of this. So at the college that I was going to at the time, they had a small agriculture program, which it sounds ridiculous, but they consider it their fashion program. Wait, that's so their, at- their agriculture program is their fashion Yes, program. because it has oh. to do with textiles and fabrics and material. Okay. And so when you're signing up for classes, there was one fashion class, which was their agriculture class. So I signed okay. up for that and I instantly became hooked. And that's when I knew I was at the wrong place because that was the only class for fashion. And that is when I decided to drop out of school and to go to FITM and figure out, you know, what it is that I wanted to do for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life. And that initial leap of dropping out of school was really scary for me because one, again, me being a obedient Chriselle, never going against like what my parents have told me I was doing that Mm -hmm. for the first time in my life. And it was really liberating because I was standing up for myself for the first time of what I wanted versus what they wanted for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. You never actually took an accounting job, right? Like you were just like, I can't imagine myself doing that. I'm not going to apply. No, no. I I hate numbers. I'm actually quite bad at numbers. Same. Yeah. Whenever I have to calculate tip, I like will count on my fingers. Like I'll be like, same. I'm like that too. (laughs) Uh, whenever I see like financial debts and like numbers, because um, I do a lot of that, or my co-founder does that for my company, I'm just like, I this mm-hmm. is like beyond me. I, I don't understand this. So, oh, completely, it's a different <laughs> yeah. language. And I think it's just really owning up to what you're great at, and I think also mm-hmm. owning up what you're not good at. You know, and totally. so with anything that I do now with all the companies that I have, it's really important for me to have a co-founder because I have a lot of things that I'm not great at. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to just focus on the creative. And I know that I could really hone in on that. If I could just focus on that, then you could really drive the company to where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. You have worn just so many hats from fashion editor to stylist to now Bumo. I mean, there are so many different parts of you. And I feel like you have lived so many different lives. Has there ever been a point where you were thinking of giving up in any way or truly changing paths? Or were you always very forthright with like, this is what feels good. And I'm going to figure this out alone as myself, Chriselle, an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I I go through all the emotions of starting anything new, right? In the beginning, it's always scary and it's messy and you're not unsure. And then you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is good. And you're Mm -hmm. building and building and building. And this is a great example. It was my dream to be able to build a social following. And I finally got to a place where I felt like I did that. And I felt unfulfilled. And I was like, why do I feel this way? You know, why why do I feel like there's still something else out there? 
And I realized that it was not that it's easy, but I was doing it for so long that I could Mm -hmm. almost determine all the things that were about to happen or that could happen, right? And it wasn't challenging for me anymore. And that's when I started figuring out what it is that I want to do and what would make me happy. Mm -hmm. And for me, whenever I build businesses, I always think about, okay, is there a problem? Like even when I started YouTube um, way back in the day, the problem that I identified online was that there was no one creating high quality luxury content for my age Mm -hmm. group. My age group back then was like mid Mm twenties. And there's a lot of young kids like in their teens doing things for teenagers. Right. But there was no one for my age group. And so I identified a problem and I was like, okay, I could be a solution for this because would my friends watch this? Like, would my peers watch this? And so I felt like I was solving a problem. And so I think it was about my eighth year mark. I got the idea for Bumo, which is my company today, which is bringing early childhood education to the working parent. So parents can continue to work Um, in the workplace, Mm -hmm. especially mothers. So they don't have to leave the workforce just because they have kids. So they could still have their career and still be an awesome parent. And so that idea came to me about eight, the eight year mark. And yes, I, I was a new mom, but at the same time, it was a perfect kind of point in my career as an influencer where I was like, I'm not challenged anymore like I used to be. Mm -hmm. And there has to be something else. And that's when I started my company. I want to talk about motherhood a bit because you're a mom of two and so much of what you do personally and of course professionally now with your new company revolves around motherhood. And I'm at a different point in my life. I'm single. I'm not sure if I want to have kids, but I am still so fascinated by so much of what you do and how you navigate it all with kids. Like that is Mm -hmm. one thing that I love watching about you. Like I love watching your family life, even though that's not something that I might necessarily aspire to have myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you've always wanted kids. I actually didn't want kids. I always really? was the one that if my friends were to make like a list of all of the, like all of our friends in a gr- in our group, um, who would be the last one to have kids? That would probably be me. No, and seriously? Yeah, yeah. And Why it did was they made, do this list? It was just like an ongoing thing that we would always talk about. Like the first one who would have kids and the last one and or like someone who would never have kids. And that was always kind of me. And and I think it goes back to societal norm, right? Of women who work a lot and people that are career-driven sometimes have a very hard time seeing themselves also be able to be great mothers, right? Totally. And I think that was one of the reasons why back then I just couldn't see myself having kids because I was so wrapped up with building my career. And I just loved Mm -hmm. being able to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. And I felt that if I had kids, I would would lose that. And I Mm -hmm. think, as I mentioned before, it's this kind of image that, and also it's not just an image, it's actually reality. There are no systems in place where once you become a parent, especially for mothers, for them to legitimately do both really, really, really well. And that's just the reality of things. And so for me, I think that was really the reason why I just couldn't see myself having kids. 
but the one thing led to another and I ended up having two. <laughs> and when did that change for you? Even, to be honest, when I had my first daughter, Chloe, I was still unsure. Like when I was I, like, I was pregnant, I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Right. But I think it was after I had Chloe and I was able to maintain my career, even though it was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I was able to continue to do what I do. And I was so fulfilled in other ways. I got to experience what motherhood was all about and this like unconditional love from mm. somebody. And for me, I was like, okay, like, I think I can do this. But then that's also when I had the idea of Bumo because I was so ambitiously stubborn to continue to work the amount of hours, if not more, after I had my first daughter. Um, because I just didn't want to lose traction. Right. And I didn't want to lose myself after becoming a mother. Like that's totally normal. And it's like, that doesn't mean you're stubborn. It's like, even sometimes the rhetoric and the language around like a working mom is so backwards to me. You know, it's like this idea of a stay-at-home mom has been so other level normalized. It's infuriating, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. And so for me, that's when I was like, okay, I'm just going to go all out and I'm just going to work like crazy and still be an awesome mom and be like at every recital, every practice, like every do all. And I did all of that. And at the end, although I did all of that and my career was thriving and I, I felt like I was being a really present mom, I was so burnt out. I couldn't even enjoy anything anymore. Like and so, way? Is there something that you remember, like a breaking point moment where you were like, I'm here and I'm miserable and I'm exhausted or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's mainly with work, right? Like uh-huh. I think that year I I hit some really pivotal moments in my career and I couldn't even feel happy about it. Mm. I just felt so numbed out. It was so hard for me to understand if I was happy or sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is just normal symptoms of depression, right? Normal right. symptoms of anxiety without having to... And I'm reading this book right now. I forgot what it's called, but it talks about different people with different coping mechanisms. And for me, I I go into this numbing mechanism where it's Mm. like, I just stop feeling anything. Totally. Um, Because it's all too intense. Yeah. Because your body, my body can't handle it anymore. So everything just becomes kind of even steepen and like, so anything too exciting or great or anything Mm. too like, sad or miserable, like you can't feel anything. And so I think I was like that. I was on autopilot for almost five years. Wow. And that's when I was like, now that I've I've kind of come out of it and I'm like going through some big transitions in my life and I've like kind of come out of that, I realized how badly burnt out I was and how badly depressed I was. But when you're in it, you don't realize it, right? Of course. You hear it all the time, like, oh, parenting is so hard and, you know, uh, you know, motherhood, it's exhausting and, you know, it's so normal to feel exhausted all the time. So for a minute, I thought this is just like how it is. Like, this is normal because parents do talk about that all the time of Mm -hmm. how exhausted they are. But I think, I think you have to really take a step back and be like, okay, am I just, tired because I didn't get lack of sleep last night? Or am Mm -hmm. I constantly tired because I just, I'm just not happy. Right. And so for me, as I mentioned earlier, I did everything that I possibly could. I, 
I was, you know, being super mom. I did all the pickup drop offs. I did all the baths. I did all the dinners. I did everything. And I thought that would fulfill me, right? Because I was doing everything and I was mm-hmm. trying my best. And then on the work side as well, like being able to make more money than I've ever done in my life and mm-hmm. to be able to buy my first two homes and to mm-hmm. be able to do all, have all these accolades. And I, the things we're told we want. Yeah. And I just, I think I, at some point was like, yeah, I'm happy, but I, I couldn't really feel that. And totally. Yeah. When you were going through the depression, was that ever diagnosed or was it just that you knew this is depression for me? Yeah, it was not diagnosed professionally. Um, I did have many therapists, but I, I never got it diagnosed by like a psychologist. Um, but it was more so confirmed through a lot of the books that I was reading, a yeah, lot of the things that need. I was feeling. Um, and I think, again, coming out of it, that's when I realized that's what I was actually going through because sometimes in hindsight, you realize things after they happen. Was there a moment that you remember when you came out of it or yeah. anything like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm going through a pretty big life transition right now, but it was when I started feeling really happy, which is so strange. Like, like out of I nowhere. Would, out of nowhere. Like I would be driving home and I would just start crying because I was happy to just feel free to be able to drive and Mm -hmm. to go home and see my kids. And it was no aha big moment of like, you know, something like life changing happened. But it was when I was able to feel those feelings, those emotions, that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is what it means to be happy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because five years ago, I was I thought that I was happy, but I wasn't feeling it in my heart. So, And then just kept going and going and you had one happy moment and then another happy moment and then mm-hmm. it just became like a series of happy moments. Then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, kind of happy. Kinda yeah. Vibe. Yeah. And you just kind of live in your emotions. Like you're okay feeling grief. You're okay feeling mm, so sad crucial. at times. You're okay with feeling... Because I think what happens is that when you see these emotions bubbling up like anxiety or, you know, um, I don't know, like, uh, moments of sadness, you try to figure out how to get it away. Right. Totally. You're afraid of of them. Yeah. Instead of trying to run from them and distract yourself, it's just actually sitting down and living in it and being like, okay, why do I feel this way? And being okay. Crying if you need to cry. Mm -hmm. Um, and then moving on, right? Totally. And so I think that is a very healthy way of being able to properly feel your emotions. Whereas before I was constantly trying to run from my emotions. I mean, that's kind of my my life motto now. It's just feel everything. All the emotions are good. Yeah. Whether they're, they're negative emotions, those are good too. And you know when you feel it versus you just seeing it. I want to talk about this Vogue article that I came across where you said, do not sacrifice your own happiness and well-being for your kids or your family. When mom is happy and fulfilled, your kids and family will be fulfilled as well. And my first thought when I read this was how progressive this sentiment was of putting 
your own well-being before your kids, which is so important, even though I think we are moving in the right direction with companies like yours that prioritizes the mom's time, well-being, and mental health. This trope of the selfless mother has been so ingratiated into the Mm. zeitgeist and celebrated that to think anything else feels like sacrilege to some extent still. Mm. So I was so relieved to hear you say that and forge this path. And I'm curious if this came around the time that you were leaving this five-year stint of depression. Yeah. I mean, that article that you read, I think just came out like a few months ago. So yeah, it's me coming out of this like five-year depression that I was going through. And honestly... I mean, I love my parents and the generation before us and they've sacrificed Mm -hmm. so, so much, especially my immigrant parents who like pretty much put everything on hold to, to, you know, make our future bright and to move to America. But I think we were so brainwashed by them in a sense where I sacrificed everything for you. So the proper way to parent is that you have to sacrifice everything for your kids as well. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just of a different generation now where I understand that you guys set the path for us and we're forever, forever grateful for that. But now that we're here in America and now that my kids are born here in America and we have ample opportunity for both male and females, I think it's unfair for women to take that burden to say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice everything that I have just so my kids can have everything that they want and need. Because mm-hmm. again, what happens is that you end up in depression. And mm-hmm. so I've, I've also seen some parents become bitter towards their kids, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, I gave everything up for you. And the, so what happens when your kids leave for college? What happens when you're left alone, right? And not saying that, you know, I have plenty of friends that gave up their careers, right? Like my best, best friend, she's a full-time stay-at-home mom Mm -hmm. and she is an incredible mom. But at the end of the day, she had the choice to do that. And I think that's really important to address here is that if you choose to stay home, you chose it, right? If you choose to work, you chose that life, right? And if you do decide to bo- do both, there's choice. And I think that's what our parents didn't have is a choice back then. And so it's really important for me because we, I have the choice that I am taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And because at the end of the day, if you put yourself first and you're in a place of, you know, healthy mind, healthy body, healthy soul, then your, your kids, kids are going to feel that too. Right. And vice versa. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was just so happy to to read that because it is still taboo in some capacity to kind of have those sentiments towards your own well-being when it's expected, you know, in this like another generation, but it still has spilled over to ours a bit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It has. That's the other reason why I'm also so hesitant to have kids. I mean, I'm sorry. I've seen your 5.30 a.m. wake-up videos. You have that like hour to yourself. So anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, Chriselle has these morning videos where she goes through her routine and she wakes up at 5.30. I don't know if you still wake up at 5.30, but in the videos, you have an hour to yourself to do the Peloton or 
you know, get in some sort of sweat, read, drink coffee, the works before mm-hmm. her daughters wake up. And yeah, I know it sounds so selfish, but I just think of all the times that I've been like hungover, I have period cramps and like just want to mm-hmm. stay in my bed and all the things, yeah. you know, that make me feel grateful that I'm in a place in my life where no one else yeah. relies on me, you know? And I feel so selfish saying this, but I'm curious if you've also ever had thoughts like this. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because like my girl group is very diverse in a sense where I have friends that are divorced. I have friends that are still single. I have friends that don't want kids. I have friends that are stay-at-home moms and we all hang out. We're all Mm -hmm. best friends, right? And that's what makes our group so colorful. And I love it so much. And it allows you to see it from their perspective. But my best friend, she actually doesn't want kids at all. And Mm -hmm. she was actually in our our little um, voting she was the one that we thought was going to be the first one to have kids. And Stop. she, oh, she's so funny. <laughs> she's now in her late thirties and we thought it was a phase because we, she's so motherly. Right. And mm. so we're like, Oh, she's just probably going through, you know, a few years of not wanting kids. But now we realize that it's, it's actually her thing. She doesn't want kids and we've all come to respect that. And she has her own reasonings and she's incredibly fulfilled. Otherwise she's incredibly fulfilled Mm -hmm. with not just her career, but also with her partner and being Mm. able to create the life that they've always wanted to have without kids. And I think it's okay to normalize that. I think we've all been brainwashed to think that we all have to have kids. And if we don't have kids, what is our purpose in life? Right. Totally. And so we're, again, we're just of a different generation now. I think our generation, it's all about finding things that fulfill you, you know, whether it's being Mm -hmm. a mother, whether it's your hobbies or your partner, it doesn't have to be kids necessarily. I mean, there's obviously huge benefits to that. Like as you get older, you have people that can come take care of you and, you know, but there's other ways you could, you could get that help other ways, you know, without kids. So no judgment to anyone who doesn't want kids. Like if that's the choice that you decide to go down and the path that you decide to go down, then, you know, I think everyone should be happy for you and we should all Mm -hmm. normalize these types of conversations. So you started in fashion. Where did your interest in skincare begin and when? Yeah, skincare became a huge interest to me when I was in high school because I dealt with acne, Mm -hmm. mainly hormonal teenage years acne. But that was such a confidence. I mean... Destroyer. Yeah, destroyer. Same. And I think a lot of teenagers have gone through that. And so I became so obsessed with ingredients. I became obsessed with finding things that were good for my skin and also makeup that would help cover it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at the time I was like, I just didn't want to cover all this up and just put tons of makeup on. So that is when my interest in beauty and makeup really started happening. Was it kind of intuitive for you? Because for me, I... I actually got into skincare really late. I wish I got into it in high school in retrospect. I mean, I also had acne and I just always just ignored it. And I didn't really have many friends anyway. So (laughs) it was all okay. But what's been interesting for me is that I found that there's actually a mental health component to skincare, like taking the time and vigilantly applying all of these serums and creams 
I feel like I'm taking care of myself. It lessens my anxiety, which is bountiful. And I just feel ready to face the world, I guess, right after Mm -hmm. I do my routine. And I'm curious if skincare has a similar sort of easing anxiety component Mm -hmm. for you or what you take from it personally. So skincare has always been kind of more of a ritual to me. So it's just something that I did every single night since high school. Did your mom teach you or how'd you learn how to do that in high school? I just researched. I also did steal some of my mom's like awesome serums. I would just watch her and observe her. And so when I started making my own money, I would just buy things that I could afford. Um, but I was really focused on acne products because I wanted mm. to heal my acne. And so I would buy things that were so drying, kind of like, you know, what you were going through. And that's when my mom was like, oh, I should help you a little bit. So I would apply the acne stuff on, but then also apply like these like really fancy serums on. Mm -hmm. And that just became our ritual of like doing that together, mother, daughter, from I would say like towards the latter end of high school years. And Mm -hmm. to be completely honest, as of now, because I've been doing it for the past, I don't know, like 20 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of do it to do it. Like every night I can literally go through like my my routine within like five minutes, super fast, right? Yeah. But yeah. then there are moments where I do make more of an intention to be able to slow down and not just doing it to do it, but I'm actually masking. And I think the masks are when yes. I am doing my self-care and I'm doing something for myself because... The moisturizers, the serums, the toners, all of that. Those are just like the rituals that I've done for the past, you know, 15 years of my life. Right. Like automatic. Automatic. Yeah. yeah. But it's the mask where you have to slow down and you're like, oh, do I really <laughs> want to put this on? Totally. Wait for 30 minutes and then come back and wash it off and redo my, like, oh, do I really want to do that? And so when you get to that place, that's when you're like, oh, this is nice. Like, totally. it actually feels really good. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm at the exact same place. I always, first of all, I always wash my hair before I do a recording because we record this on video. And I always do a mask the night before because I know I'm washing my hair so I can get the mud and all the, you mm. know, whatever the stuff that's going to be on my face and my hair because I know I'm going to wash it. And it really is so ritualistic. And I feel so good the next day. I'm like, I took care of myself last night. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something about doing something for yourself that kind of sets the mood and the intention for whether it's the evening or the morning. For Mm -hmm. me, it's the evening. So I've noticed that whenever I take that extra step to do that mask, then I'll light the candle. Then mm-hmm. I'll open my book. Mm-hmm. Then I'll just like grab the, the hot tea. So it's like one thing leads to the other. And then like you're able to get that full experience, right? And so you just totally. have to start somewhere. And I think a mask is a great one to start off with because again, you're literally committing committing to 30 minutes of extra time on skincare because you have to sit there with the mask on. So you might as well read a book or you might as yeah. well, I don't know, yeah. watch your favorite Netflix show or whatever it is. And then it turns into self-care night. And then exactly, you're happy the next day. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible how that works. It's so funny. I feel the exact same way about masks. And then beyond topical products, I also wanted to talk about Botox and fillers because I think that they're so stigmatized. And I think it's so awful when people put down these things or make fun of people who get them when we Mm -hmm. live in a society 
that so perpetuates the idea that women should age gracefully, right? And, mm-hmm. and we're in terms like anti-aging cream, which essentially is against aging itself, which makes no sense because we all mm-hmm. age, you know? And I hate how stigmatized all this stuff is. And I'm curious what your opinion on this is. Well, it's interesting that you brought this whole anti-aging thing up because when you go to Korea, there's really no creams or any products that are Mm anti-aging. They don't label it that. But here in the States... So interesting. um, What do they say? I don't know, like hydrating cream or like Mm. they'll label the ingredient like hyaluronic acid. Of course, they think of cute names, um, right. like bouncy skin or glowing skin or whatever. But no buzzwords like anti-aging. There are buzzwords, but it's very rare to see anti-aging. I, I think it has to do one with kind of, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, you should mm-hmm. still use a cream. And so just right. taking that word away. But also I do agree with you. It is, you know, we all age and we should just normalize that. And I think aging gracefully looks different to everyone. There might be women that don't get Botox and don't get fillers and they look great and they feel great, right? Props to them. Yeah. And there are women that need their yearly, bi-yearly kind of check-ins with the Botox. My mom, she's 63 now and she just started asking me about Botox. She's been super against the idea of it. She knows that I get it once a year. Mm-hmm. And so she started asking me questions. So I actually took her and she was like, oh, this is not as bad as I thought. And she feels great. So she's like, I want to do this once a year. Yeah. Um, but she waited until she was 63, right? And yeah. so I think aging gracefully, it really is more of a internal thing. And if you feel good about yourself, if you feel like there is a wrinkle that's bothering you, then it's bothering you. What's the yeah. big deal? Like if you want to shoot some Botox in your skin, who then why? Cares? who cares, right? Uh, obviously, there are concerns around, uh, and I won't go into this because I'm not a doctor, but right. like, Toxicity where does it go? And yeah. the bloodstream and like fillers, do they actually dissolve completely? And again, I don't know the answers to that, but obviously if, you have a trusted derm. These are questions that you could ask them. And if it's mm-hmm. something that you feel comfortable doing yes. and they suggest that it's okay for you to do at the given age that you're at, whether you're too young or too old or you know whatever it is, then no one should feel shamed about that. And I think everyone's different when it comes to aging gracefully. I want to switch gears a bit because over the last year, there has been a lot more awareness about racism and violence against Asian American people. And one of the most surprising parts for me was learning about the microaggressions. Like I read this article where you talked about going to fashion shows and how brands would seat you with other people of pan-Asian origin instead of sitting you with the American fashion editors when you are... American, which is both just awful and insane. And I'm curious how and when you realized this was happening and what your initial response was. Yeah. So I've been going to fashion weeks and fashion shows for about, I'd say about eight years now and multiple seasons. And in the beginning, it was just exciting to be there, right? And it was Mm -hmm. just an honor to be invited, yet alone sitting front row and being dressed by the brands and all that. It's a very big deal. 
But I think it was towards kind of my fifth year of doing fashion weeks. And at that point, you kind of know where you're sitting. Like you kind of know the group that they seat you with at the different houses, right? And everyone has a different strategy. And I'm not saying that all houses are like this, but it was very common for all the Asian influencers, whether you're from Asia or whether you're from America or you're an Asian influencer from South America or, mm-hmm. you know, Canada, it didn't matter. They would all sit us kind of in the same row. And at, we're all friends, right? We're all really good friends. So we would naturally be like, oh, it's the Asian row. Like we love each other. <laughs> yeah. And so what, what started off kind of just for fun, mm-hmm. we started then realizing, oh, this is happening a lot. This is, wait, but why are the other American influencers sitting in the American section and I'm over here? And again, this is not for all houses, Mm -hmm. but there were specific houses that you just know that they put all of us together because they just assume that we're of Asian descent. So we should all be sitting together, which doesn't really make sense to me because usually it's by region, right? And so I think it was towards the last few years of going to Fashion Week, the questions were going through and we would chat about them. And it was really this movement that was started because of the uprise in Asian American and Pacific Islander hate throughout the country, where we finally realized that a lot of it had to do with microaggression. And Sometimes microaggression, people don't even really know that it exists. And that's why they're Mm -hmm. microaggressions, right? Right. Because they're not acknowledged. Yeah. You don't even realize that you're doing it and you don't know how it happened, right? Right. And so my point is we could all point fingers and we could all be like, well, this person did this, this brand did this, you know, this person said this. But at the end of the day, these are all learnings that we've learned somewhere, right? Whether it be our upbringing or through our teachers or through our just societal norms. Mm -hmm. It's just important at this point to unlearn a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. I've actually had a few friends that called me up during this time being like, I had no idea that I had microaggressions against Asian. And I, I truly didn't understand why. It was just my upbringing. And I honestly, whenever I saw an Asian person, I would naturally just say konnichiwa, right? Oh my God. And I was like, okay, well, let me tell you why that's wrong, right? And so again, for me, it's easy to be like, you're stupid. You're fucking dumb. Like, right. why, why do you think that like way? Like evolve and learn. Yeah. Right. But it's really important that we as Asian American community is taking the time, the extra time to educate these people. Um, it's also not totally your job though, as well. People should be doing the work themselves. Yeah. I mean, the amount of times that people and, you know, Asian Americans is so normal for us and we all kind of laugh at it because we, we all go through this, but people are just like, um, uh, or konnichiwa or, you know, people seriously say this. Yeah, all the time. Like you'll be walking down the street and someone be like, Konnichiwa. And you're just like, okay. Um, oh my God, that is insane. All the time, right? And so what do you respond? Our parents that came here mainly as immigrants, um, mm-hmm. the first generation, they have taught us, majority of us, to just stay silent. And we are in America. And so we have to stay silent. 
And Mm -hmm. if it doesn't kill you, then you don't need to really use your voice or fight for whatever is there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of unlearning of what we've been taught from our parents. And then also, again, educating and also using our voice and not being scared. And there's a lot of xenophobia around that. And then, you know, the misinformation Mm -hmm. about the virus and, you know, where it came from. And that has led to harassment to all Asian, whether you're Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, Pacific Islander. And there's been so many abuse attacks, emotional, emotionally, physically, you know, it's just, it's, it's been pretty crazy and wild to see. But I think coming out of this, not that it's completely gone, but I think the awareness Mm -hmm. is there now. I'm hoping that people will take the time to really learn about the Asian American history. My my wish one day is to have the Asian American history in the history books in high school because you don't really learn about that at all. And why why wouldn't it be there, right? It, it was a big part of totally the history of America, right? And so there's a lot of work that we still need to do, but I think we've made significant progress this past year with this movement that was started. I'm curious, did you feel unsafe at all during this time? I did a little bit, which is so weird. And keep in mind that that I am American as it gets. Like mm-hmm. America is my home. I was born here. I lived here most of my life. Uh, this is my home. And never in my life right. where I like stepped out of my house and I just to go get gas, have I ever even second guessed if like, I was going to get attacked. Like that's, right. that thought has never crossed my mind. But as these stories were coming out, I would <laughs> constantly be looking around, right? And it really made me sad that that it, this is what it has come to. Like mm-hmm. being born in America and I feel paranoid to be in America. That mm-hmm. during that time, I also told my parents who um, a lot of elder Asian Americans were getting attacked during this time. So um, they were the main target for people because I think they knew that they just couldn't fight back, nor will they fight back. And so during this time, I told my parents that they had to stop walking outdoors. You know, that was a big part of their ritual, like every day, which is like going on walks. You know, they're retired, so they right. really have nothing else to do but right. look forward to. And they just couldn't go on walks anymore because they felt unsafe. And it was really, really eye-opening and sad. How do you plan on tackling these conversations and topics of xenophobia and racism with your daughters? We started reading a lot of books. And I think storytelling is the best way with Mm -hmm. younger kids. I think you have to tell it to them at their level. Obviously, you're not going to directly tell them, you know, given their age group. She's six and Colette is two. So obviously, Colette is a little young. But Chloe knows about the Asian hate because, you know, there were kids at her school talking about it. And not that they were calling her names, but Mm -hmm. um, I've heard other kids where um, they would call like Asian kids at their school, like the coronavirus. You must be kidding me. No, no, not at Chloe's school, but my friend's kid's school. And so... Because I was aware of this possibility happening at school, because again, kids are getting the information from their parents and right. they they don't really know how deeply 
hurtful these words can be, right? And so mm-hmm. they're just speaking out of whatever they're hearing from their own homes. And so I had to have this talk with her and let her know of what was happening. And if she does experience anything, that it's important that she tells me. And then also that if someone says something hurtful, mm-hmm. they probably are hurting themselves and they just really don't know. And it's almost like, don't take it to heart because that was my main thing with her. It's like, if someone says something mean to you, it has nothing to do with you, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of education around how to react to certain things if it did happen, but it was storytelling. Um, there are a lot of books that were coming out about um, different races and colors and cultures. And we were reading a different book almost every single night just so she understood that there are people that are mean to other people because of their skin color. Mm-hmm. And if that is, that's not very nice, um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't define you. And so for that year, when that was happening, I was aggressively reading a lot of these type of books to her. Oh my God. I as a mother, I just like, how do you sleep at night? I mean, I know you do. It's just, there's so much. Yeah. And that's part of motherhood. I think the hardest thing that I've learned with motherhood is there's a lot of things that they're going to face. And the hardest part of motherhood is being okay with what they go through and just kind of letting them experience it through their, mm-hmm. their, lens in their eyes and not trying to protect them from everything. And for me, being the planner that I am and being overly kind of like controlling at times, that Mm -hmm. was a really hard thing for me to kind of let go of, which is, oh, but if someone says something mean to her, I'm going to go fight this person or go call that mom and like tell them what they did to my kid. Like I'm that type of person. But I decided that you know, it's really important that the kids are able to experience their own things. I'm sure you did too. You know, as a kid, you probably went through your own shit. I went through my own shit. And that has allowed me to kind of flourish and become confident now as an adult. Last question. What drives you? I think what drives me now is very different than what drove me a few years ago. But Now it's about being able to have my inner peace and be able to continue to do what I love. And it's as simple as that, because I think when you try to reach your goals and you try to do everything that you've always wanted to, Mm -hmm. if you're doing that with an anxious mind and a heart and you're always like living in the future in hopes that you will accomplish X, Y, and Z, you will never find that inner peace and you'll never actually enjoy what you're building. Mm. And that is how I was running my life these past five years. Just running, running, running and not really taking the time to feel everything that I'm going through and these amazing experiences because I'm just so busy building. And so now what drives me is being able to be present and continue to do what I love to do, which is my kids and my businesses, but also doing it more consciously so I have my inner peace. So I'm not constantly thinking about the next big thing because I don't think that is a quality of life that anyone really wants to live. Mm. At least I don't. We are still in the basement, but that, my friends, was Chriselle Lim. You can follow her on Instagram at Chriselle Lim and me at Gillian Sagansky. 
I always want to hear your thoughts on this episode and every episode. So DM me with comments and questions. In the meantime, I'm going to go wear my orange Abercrombie & Fitch shirt and see if the popular girls will let me sit at their table. Except, wait, they (laughs) suck. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) That's it. No, that's it.